Guys, we write about stuff on the internet. True. Okay? And if you do that job, there's definitely one, there's one truism, one axiom that's been burned into your brain, and that is don't read the comments. Don't ever do it. However, though, I propose an addendum to the rule. Okay. I would love to read some more comments about the Pro Se podcast. You know why we would love to read those comments? Because when you leave comments, it helps other people find the show. It pushes us up in search results. It makes it so that more people find the Pro Se podcast because you love it. But we would like other people to love it, too. It also makes me feel really good, which is anathema to what internet comments usually do That's for true. people. Yes. So, yeah, if you like our show, you want to hear us continue to do this forever and ever, please leave us a five-star review and a written review. It's that written part that really helps us out a lot. And now, on to the show. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. You said co-hosts. I did. Uh, which is, Alex is on vacation. Alex is gone. Um, we could make the traditional joke that he's been fired. You know, I feel like we've done a round robin of those now, <laughs> so we can probably move on to some gotta, other standing joke. we got to fire producers Steve and Kelly. That's, that's yeah, next Yeah, that's right. Us. That's yeah. ne- next up. Our next um, citizen's firing. <laughs> so I think... One thing up top, and and Alex loves doing these, and he's really good at like doing the news fast. But we have had a lot of things happen this week, so we just want to maybe uh, yeah. drop drop a few nuggets it, before we get into the meat of the show. It could have been an even more packed show. There was right before we came in, there, we, there were the reports that uh, Andrew McCabe, that the prosecutors have recommended that he be indicted. The, right. the whole um, situation with you know leaks and and something like that. It's too fast moving to talk about on the show, but it's it's a uh, it's a big thing that we're going to be tracking going forward. Yeah, and then there's one that everybody knows I like talking about immigration things. So this week, the Supreme Court allowed the Trump administration to reject asylum claims for people who are crossing into the country anywhere yeah. except um, at from a country their own country. So yeah. if you come up from, say, Guatemala into Mexico and then to the U.S., you can be rejected. So that was a big move. It's also the first week of football season, and there was a big lawsuit filed, I believe, two days ago against Antonio Brown alleging sexual assault and the whole bunch of different things and uh, that raises all sorts of questions about the way that the NFL polices these issues and um, you know it's a civil lawsuit as opposed to a criminal charge yep. and um, Zach wrote a really interesting Zach Zagger wrote a really interesting story for us so if a lot there, of stuff happening that's just a little too fast to talk about. If there was the any kind of like summer slowdown in the news, it's definitely over. I know. September is here and things are clicking along. Yeah. Um, speaking of big developments, we are later um, going to share a chat we just had with an employment pro from the firm Fisher Phillips, and he's going to break down a new development in California, a law that's pretty important. Um, it's going to make companies like Uber and Lyft treat contract workers as employees. Yeah, it's a big deal. Everything that happens in California is sort of a big deal for the rest of the country. Yeah, and it's really sort of a, a sign of what could come to other states, and we kind of will get into that exactly. and, and what to expect. But before then, we're going to talk about the uh, the opioid crisis yet again. Um there was a big multi-billion dollar settlement that was reached this week uh, by Purdue Pharma, which is the company behind OxyContin. And, um, uh, you know, they are seen as one of the – there's a lot of – this is sort of a sprawling situation, but they are seen as one of the key early drivers of the crisis. And what would happen with them in this litigation has been one of the big things that people are watching. And it's it's an interesting situation that, again, is developing quickly, but it's it's not exactly a simple settlement. 
Well, um, you know, I know we've talked about opioids on the show many times in the many lawsuits that are related to the epidemic. And I always get a little confused. So where are we here? Which one is this? What's going on? Yeah, we talked about the Oklahoma case a few weeks ago, which was um, a standalone case. And there's also been a lot of criminal cases in the last year or so. Right. Um, but this is the big one. This is the the federal multi-district litig- litigation that's in it's based in Ohio and it's um, thousands of municipalities and local governments and counties and also uh, uh, every state in the country is involved in this case. They're suing uh, Purdue for the role that they they're suing Purdue and all and many other drug makers for the role that they played in the um, in the crisis. And no surprise, this is a bellwether. It's really closely watched. What happens here ha- will have real impact on the future of all of these litigations. Yeah, I mean the big bellwether for the MDL is coming is kicking off in in October. Uh, so it's. It's it's a huge huge case. I mean, it's it makes you it calls to mind the you know the tobacco litigation sure. and um, other things of that scale. But um, on Wednesday, word leaked out that Purdue, who I mentioned earlier, is one of the biggest players here. Um, they had reached a big settlement. It wasn't just them. It was this family, the Sacklers, who owns the company. Um, and it was the first of the MDL to. There's been smaller settlements in these little standoff standalone cases, but. Um, this was the first real big, huge settlement in the MDL to to end their piece of yeah. of litigation. But as I mentioned, it's it's not quite as simple as that. I like when you tell me things aren't simple because it leads me to say, Bill, explain it to me. <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> um, so the the I mean the settlement itself is not the most straightforward thing. Um, Purdue, there, there's been talks for months that Purdue would try to evade a lot of these this liability by filing for bankruptcy. Um, that is a key part of this deal. Uh, okay. The company will file for bankruptcy and convert itself into a for-profit trust that will continue to sell Oxycontin, but um, the proceeds will go to paying the plaintiffs, paying off the liability. Um, the company will also reportedly donate free treatments for addiction and overdose and things like that. Um, the Sacklers themselves will relinquish control of the company, obviously, they're putting into this trust. Um, but they themselves will pay something like $3 billion is the number that's being reported this week. And um, all told, the value of the settlement is supposed to be like between 10 and $12 billion. Okay, well, some big numbers there and maybe slightly unusual methods for mm-hmm. making those payments. But I followed all of that and you promised complications. <laughs> I overpromised. <It's- laughs> Classic, classic professional mistake. Um, so the uh, after the story broke, which I believe was yesterday, um, today we've seen more than twenty states come out and say that they are not going to agree to the deal as it was leaked out. That's a complication. Um, the attorneys general for New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and many other states have said that um, that it basically that it lets the Sacklers off the hook and that it lets the company off the hook, and it's just too. Um, it's too light of a of a deal. Um, it's it's sort of an interesting breakdown, and I haven't really seen any analysis as to why this is. But uh, the split is almost purely political. Um, okay. if, you know, the traditional red states mm-hmm. um, are the folks who are signing on to the deal, and more it's it's more the blue states that are um, that are pushing back and saying they're not going to take part. Um, so, to that effect, New York uh, New York's attorney general said that it was quote. 
a low ball to the millions of victims of the opioid crisis. Um, Pennsylvania's attorney general called it, quote, a slap in the face to everyone who has had to bury a loved one due to this family's destruction and greed. And Connecticut, I thought I would pull out specifically, quote, the scope and scale of the pain, death, and destruction that Purdue and the Sacklers have caused far exceeds anything that has been offered thus far. Not so, mincing words. Yeah. No. So um, cases have been filed by many of those states against the Sacklers individually, against the family as opposed to the company Purdue to you know try to make sure that that um, you know there isn't some creative way that folks are evading this the, this litigation that there is you know that there are efforts to if the money went somewhere that you're going to get the money back as part of the case so uh, news is still coming in as we speak it will probably be different by tomorrow but um, it hardly seems like this is the last we've heard of Purdue and uh, their role in in the crisis and also the litigation that followed well that answers some big questions about the MDL. I want to stick with opioids as a key topic, but mm-hmm. instead talk about an interesting wrinkle that we're facing in another case. So we basically had something confirmed this week that I think maybe we all intuitively know. People aren't good at electronic redaction of documents. No. I, I mean, I, I haven't made many efforts to redact things electronically, but I have to think I would mess up. I, I think you would be in good company because uh, a major law firm that you would presume would have to do this semi-regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the, one yeah. of the big guys. Yeah, they messed it up. Uh, this week, Jones Day inadvertently disclosed details about grand jury proceedings with some bad redaction mm-hmm. to this court filing in a criminal opioid case against pharma company Indivior. It's it's always such an interesting question, just to uh, you know to to media navel gaze for a second. The question of you know when stuff when redactions are um, you know when when law firms or the government or anybody else fails at these redactions, you know, what we're allowed to see and what we're not allowed to see and stuff like that. It's a very interesting It always makes me think that maybe there should just be some company that offers like foolproof redaction software, like... Yeah, that'll Seems be. Seems like a, they could that's really a fun make thing. some money, right? That's a fun thing to build to clients. Be like, <laughs> we were so bad at doing this somewhat, somewhat simple thing that we have now hired a vendor, an outside vendor, and yeah. Oh, of course, you'll be paying for that. I, but, but. Hey, uh, it might be better than releasing some <laughs> some information you're not supposed to. Yeah, but so, let me tell you yeah, what happened. Yeah, tell us what happened. So back in April, a federal grand jury indicted um, the pharma company in Divior on more than two dozen felony charges for allegedly falsely marketing um, this uh, specific form of Suboxone, which they said was childproof and less addictive than some other options. Right. Um, The government's seeking forfeiture of $3 billion, so no small amount here. Jones Day and a firm called Gentry Lock filed a reply memorandum looking to dismiss the DOJ indictment. The public version of the reply memo said that some information was redacted to protect grand jury materials and that they were filing under seal an unredacted version. But our own Jeff Overly, who reports on all of this healthcare care, sure, yeah. he reports that every word in the digital version of the public memorandum could be read by just copying and pasting the blacked out portions. And I have to I have to think that he went ahead and did that. He sure did. So what 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 are we seeing there? Let me tell you what was in there. Um, so in these improperly blacked out sections. Mm -hmm. It described testimony from former high-ranking Indivior employees, uh, stuff about their compensation and and what executives were paid. It talked about how and when different grand juries were involved in the case, because it's a pretty sprawling case we're talking about. It had a bunch of stuff about witnesses who testified in grand jury proceedings. I mean, really a lot of detail. This is annoying for Jones Day because uh, idiots like us sit here and talk about it for a while. but. 
any real like legal repercussions from this? I can't imagine that the judge or the DOJ were particularly happy. No one's thrilled. Um, so a magistrate judge is involved at the stage, and on Wednesday, they the judge seemed pretty peeved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the judge gave Jones Day two weeks to explain why they shouldn't be sanctioned for making this mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one thing I want to talk about with it, though, I mean, this isn't just to call out Jones Day. I think a lot of people make these mistakes. This one's really specific, though, about grand jury information. Yeah. And I thought it was worth a second to talk about why that's different. Um, there's a core idea in American law that grand jury testimony is supposed to be secret. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Just because a prosecutor brings a case to a grand jury doesn't mean someone will actually be charged with a crime. So there's an interest in protecting people if they aren't actually going to be charged. And there's also um, some important reasons that secrecy makes it easier to get witnesses at grand juries to tell the truth. So there's a lot of reasons to keep things secret. Yeah, the the overall effect of the functioning of the system is reliant yes. on the, 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 that guarantee continuing to be something that means something. So whether or not Jones Day gets in trouble was obviously a question we were kind of batting around here at the office and had some people writing some stories about it. And our, our own Andrew Strickler, who was on the show just last week, he's mm-hmm. our, our ethics pro, he wrote a story for us about how Sources said that even though courts take grand jury testimony really seriously and the secrecy is very important, that Jones Day probably won't get sanctioned as long as they explain how the mistake happened in the first place and that nothing was intentional. Yeah. So presuming this was not an intentional thing, which I think it probably wasn't. It seems like it was just a gaffe. Right. Um, and one of the reasons that people were telling Andrew that Jones Day can come out unscathed here is just how often lawyers mess this up. Well, I was going to say, it's a thing that we see all the time. This stuff does happen. It's it's very uh, regrettable for a law firm to yeah. make a blunder like this, but it does happen from time to time. So if there were just like truly draconian uh, penalties for this every time it happened. Yeah, that would seem extreme given yeah. that it, uh, I think the courts acknowledge that this is something people are not good at and, mm-hmm. and it fairly frequently comes up. Plus, Jen's Day has on its side too that the unredacted portions, while I sort of explained what some of them were and they're they're interesting and more than should have been out in the public, they don't appear to include anything that's clearly prejudicial to yeah. the government's case, and it doesn't expose particular witnesses. Well, so right, because if they that's really important. If they were doing something prejudicial, and you know, they were saying we didn't mean to do this, but yeah. they were just doing it to. Um, it's interesting to think about the. Uh, I was thinking more about like how courts would punish people for doing this, yeah. and if you came down too hard. People would start being so annoying in how they file. They like would be seeking th- filing things under seal all the time. Yes, and just of course. Like, yeah, right. So it's- yeah, I mean, I think the over under on how this will pan out for Jones Day is summed up well by an expert that said this to Andrew. This looks like just negligence, and that's something that does happen with some frequency, unfortunately. <laughs> California just passed landmark legislation with sweeping implications for gig economy companies like Uber and Postmates. The law, called AB5, is aimed at making those companies classify their workers as employees rather than independent contractors, and it builds on a big Supreme Court ruling from last year. To talk about AB5 and the big changes it might cause, we're joined by Jim Fessenden, a partner in the San Diego office of employment law firm Fisher Phillips. 
Thanks for coming on the show, Jim. Thanks for having me. So before we get into what's going on in California specifically, I want maybe some of our our non-employment law listeners to really understand what's the difference between an employee and an independent contractor. Well, it depends which time frame you're asking about, but for decades we had a, a test that was widely focused on control. And there was different ways to assess whether a retaining entity had a lot of control over a contractor, but that was really the test. It was always about how mm-hmm. much control did the retaining entity have over the contractor. And everyone had their own test. The IRS had a 20-factor test. The DOL had their own test. The state of California had, a, I think, an eight-factor test. Everyone had their test just to determine control. But the Dynamex decision and the AB5 AB, uh, that was just passed by the California legislature uh, really changes the game here and instead creates these three new tests, uh, all of which a retaining entity has to satisfy to prove that they properly classify the contractor. And so now the new test, there's three factors. that ABC doesn't stand for anything, by the way. They just call it the ABC test. A is, is back to the control analysis. It's whether the retaining entity has sufficient control. But on top of that, the retaining entity has to show that the work that is being performed by the contractor is outside the hiring entity's usual business, usual course of business. And then they also have to show that the contractor is engaged in an, in an independent trade or occupation uh, when they do their work. So basically, we've gone from what was, uh, it was much easier in the past to qualify as an independent contractor under the law. And now, um, and you mentioned Dymex, that's, that was a Supreme Court decision. And it's sort of closing some of the things that made this a very loose definition, making it harder and harder for, in this gig economy, people to be correctly classified as independent contractors. Yeah, there, there's there's not much debate about that. Unfortunately, it is a more stringent standard, and, and it's introducing a whole new level of analysis that, that's really never uh, been part of the independent contractor analysis before. We've never before focused on what the retaining entity's business is, for but, instance. But now, Jim, so could we talk about sort of the impetus for this law? I mean, it's it's a situation where you know independent contractors and employees that distinction has existed for for decades, for centuries. But um, you know. Could you talk a little bit about how the rise of the gig economy has sort of, you know, put a new stress on that on that distinction or, or made courts sort of think about it in a different way? Sure. Uh, basically, the technology of the Internet and smartphones has developed a whole sub-economy that pairs people who want to do some kind of job with customers who need some kind of job done. Uh, and the gig economy is really good at doing that, and it's really efficient at that. Uh, but there's two groups of people who may not love people being classified as contractors. One might be the government because they don't get payroll taxes necessarily, and that's a problem for them. Their job is to collect payroll taxes, and contractors don't directly pay uh, payroll taxes. The second group that is you know, a, widely recognized as being at least part of some of the behind-the-scenes work on AB5 is uh, organized labor. Um, this This does affect them, and they believe that if there are more people on payroll as employees, their membership ranks will increase as well. Yeah, it seems like we've really gone from, I think a lot of people have sort of the vision of, you know, it's the 1960s and you're either an employee who has their 40-hour-a-week job or you're a contractor because you're the babysitter that's just hired occasionally by somebody. Um, But that's just not how the economy works anymore. So it seems like a lot of these distinctions are really blurry. I agree. I, I think the law has not quite caught up with the times, and I think this. I think AB5 is probably going to set us back a little bit. To me, it's not a realistic 
reflection of what most people want out of their work. Uh, and it's not a realistic reflection of what most businesses need. Well, I have to think that some of the companies that, that run these services uh, share a similar belief. I mean, how how will companies that operate in this space, I mean, I have to think that they're gonna that there's going to be litigation over this. How what might legal challenges to AB five look like in the in the months or years ahead? Yeah, then there there might be more than one or two legal challenges to AB five. Um, there's there's some talk of a ballot initiative which would potentially overturn AB five or overturn the standard. Uh, there's some talk of challenging it on legal grounds and constitutional grounds, possibly under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, I haven't seen anything in writing on that, but there's there's been some rumblings of that. But I think those are your two main uh, factors for uh, what other companies or, or businesses might do, and perhaps even some contractors as well, or people who want to be classified as contractors might join in that as well. Are you also expecting a swell of litigation um, if the law stays in place here? I mean, I would imagine it may take a while for some uh, employers to fully get on board with this shift, or maybe we'll resist it outright. So then you'd have many potential plaintiffs that would be the, however you want to qualify them right now, are they employees or independent contractors, but the people that think that this should apply to their position may challenge in court? I think so. I mean, this, you know, there's no two ways about it. This, this certainly gives the, I'm on the defense side, but this does give the plaintiff's bar a, a lot more to work with. And, and unfortunately, uh, a lot more to make some noise with. Uh, there are there are a lot of uh, punitive aspects of AB5. In my view, again, I'm on the defense side, admittedly. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of businesses who are caught off guard. I'll, I'll tell you, my phone has been ringing off the hook uh, in the last couple of days because a lot of people are starting to realize that this could really affect their business. And they assumed they would be exempted. And there's a lot of businesses that you would think would be exempted, and they're not. So I think we can we can get you out on the question of, you know, we've seen California pass regulations before that then move to other parts of the country. They act as a blueprint for other parts of the country. Do you see other states, other jurisdictions uh, taking a similar approach to AB5? And, you know, if, if that does happen, what does that mean sort of in a, in a broader, bigger picture sense for the companies that are operating this space, the, the, the gig economy companies? Sure. Well, I jokingly say that in California, I can sometimes see the future here because uh, other states are going to inevitably follow some of what California does. Now, it's only going to be some states. It isn't going to be all states, of course. There's usually kind of a smaller contingency of states that oftentimes mirror California. Those states are typically Oregon, Washington, maybe New York, New Jersey to some extent, perhaps Illinois. Other states are going the exact opposite direction. Uh, I, I don't anticipate that states like Arizona or Alabama or Tennessee are going to follow suit with a similar law, at least, well, Tennessee actually does have a proposal for a similar law. Arizona passed a, uh, did actually pass the opposite version of this law and said that, as I understand it at least, that uh, contractors who have a written independent contractor agreement are presumed to in fact be contractors. Um, So I do think some states are going to follow suit. Yeah, and that seems like it will present its own challenges if what you're saying bears out in the future that some states are going one way and others the exact opposite, then we've got a classic patchwork of laws that a nationwide employer would have to deal with. You nailed it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what's, uh, I think, stoking a lot of fear in a lot of gig economy companies. I think this one's been really interesting. It sounds like you're going to be very busy with your clients in, in the coming months. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
I think we held it down without Alex today. We did. And I was going to say, see you again next week, but I won't be here next week. Right. I mean, Alex and I will be here, listeners, so never fear. But yeah, we're taking turns here, trading off with you guys. See you in a while. <laughs> Have a great vacation, Bill Thank Donahue. You. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jim Fessenden, and contributing reporters, Emily Field, Jeff Overly, Andrew Strickler, and Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our show's available on all the major podcast platforms, and we'd love for you to leave us a review. You help other people find us. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.